Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. You can find us on Facebook as well as Twitter and Instagram at Exchange Houston. The following is a message from our guest speaker. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. Y'all can be seated. Lord, I ain't got preaching yet, and he's trying to get me crying all over again. Uh, always. Uh, I don't know if y'all saw on Facebook, but I had shared the little, the little picture of six years ago when he went to Australia with me. And uh, we went, they took us to a little zoo, and he was spooning uh, the little wallaby there. Because uh, it actually wasn't a kangaroo, because kangaroos are big, actually. The wallabies are the little smaller ones. They're, they're more like our deer. They're, if you get hit by something in Australia, it's normally a wallaby, not a kangaroo. And they're running in front of your cars and everything. They're just literally everywhere. I mean, it's like insane. And, uh, but when we were there, I'll never forget, uh, we were staying on the 67th floor uh, in a, in a three-bedroom condo that they had put us in, beautiful, right down on the beach. And uh, every morning, we were getting woke up really early because when you're on the 67th floor, the sun was coming through at like 4.45 a.m., and it was all windows, and so you couldn't darken it out. And so we get up, and we were both a little chugged up, so we go down and sit in the sauna, uh, that, that, that the place had, and do some different stuff, and, and all morning long, we'd sit and we'd talk uh, about uh, his legalism and my freedom, <laughs> and we would just sit, and we would, we would talk about law, grace, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this, and it was like, it was like 10 days of just intense questions, because there was actually a day uh, where because he found out my family and I on the way to preach for him had gone to a certain movie, and it wasn't a bad movie. I think it was right at our just because of, you know, some legs getting blown off or something. And, uh, but just the fact that we went to a movie, he almost separated from us. All right, so that, that, that'll, that'll tell you where he was. He almost, like, kicked me to the curb because he couldn't believe a man of God would go to the movie house. And I tease, tease him about that. And, I mean, he didn't have, in his house, there was, you know, I mean, he had a TV, and it was like, you know, I think for little kid stuff on there. I mean, just nothing. I mean, he was, like, legalist to the core. And, uh, and Lisa's certainly happy we had those discussions. As their home became more enjoyable, I, I, I tell them now every time I get around them, I said, uh, the one thing I tell these young guys especially, uh, when it comes to your kids, if there's one thing I wish I would have did more is play more. Uh, I wish I would have played more with my kids. And uh, just because, you know, when you're young or serious, we're going to change the world. And I'm like, I, I mean, I, now I'm making up for it with my granddaughter. Because now she comes to my house, she sits down, she says, Papa. Papa, and she's on the floor. Now, I don't want to get on the floor. I don't want to get on the floor because then I got to get up from the floor, okay? I just don't want to do it. And it's like she's all popping. I'm like, okay, baby. I just get, I get right down there on the floor with her, and I say, I'm going to make up for it with the grandkids, anything I didn't play with the kids, but I encourage my kids to do the same thing. And I always love watching how these guys are playing with their kids and, and crazy with their kids. And, and that, that is something uh, that to me is, is, is extremely important because I've seen way too many preachers' kids want nothing to do with God, want nothing to do with the ministry because everything was always so serious there was no joy in it no peace or anything else and so uh, I, I want to commend uh, both of these guys you, you, you know not only them but you guys got a great team here you know that right uh, I know you know a quarter of you here tonight are a part of that team so you should say amen Come on. I mean, you guys really do. I mean, I've gone, I've gone to places five times the size of y'all don't have a solid as a team and just, just good, 
uh, uh, just good ministry that you got here. And so I want you to know I'm very proud of you guys. Uh, very proud of Pastor Jared and Shelley and and this whole team, and it is it really is my honor to be here. So, well, are you ready for the word tonight? Let me get to this. I want to just mention something quick. Uh, I got back to the hotel this afternoon, and I realized that man, there was the one thing uh, from this morning that. I think it was so important that I needed to share. So I said, well, I got time. I'll just share it in the evening. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the things that, that bother, has bothered me since I was a little child was the story of Abraham and Isaac. The story just bothered me because what bothered me is that Abraham is called our father of faith. And when God speaks to Abraham and tells him to sacrifice his own kid and kill him, there was no argument. Now, I don't know about you. I'm just telling you right now, if I heard five audible voices from heaven, I had 30 prophetic words tell me to kill my son Brandon, I'm going to say, nope, ain't happening. I'm just telling you right now, ain't happening. I don't, I don't care if God appeared in flesh in front of me. I'd look right at him and say, I'm going to be rebellious on this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebel against you. I'm not killing my kid for anybody, for any reason. You've lost your mind, Papa. I'm not doing it. I rebel. I'm going to sin at this. If you want my kid dead, you're going to have to kill him. Come on, is anybody here? All right. Until I understood that Abraham, before he was Abraham, he was Abram, and he comes from Ur of the Chaldees. He came from northern Iraq. How many of you know Abraham wasn't a Jew? That actually shocked some people. Uh, Abraham wasn't a Jew. He was an Iraqi, a Babylonian, who got a covenant. Matter of fact, a Jew came about three generations later by the name of Judah that actually came out of his grandson. And so being raised in that culture, they would always, I mean, it was uh, child sacrifice was normal. Their gods asked for their firstborn child. So the first 40 years of his life, all he knew was that child sacrifice was normal. So it wasn't weird to him. It wasn't strange to him. We think it's crazy. We're like, why in the world would any deity ask for someone's child? What kind of sick God is this? Because that sounds more like Molech than the Abba of Jesus. Come on, you hear me? It, it doesn't sound, it sounds more like, you know, the Greek gods, or it sounds like the Egyptian gods. It sounds more mythology. But, but the difference is God was showing him something. He was saying, I want you to offer me up your son. He puts him on the altar and lifts the knife in the air. But the awesome thing is God then tells him, stop. The reason he told him stop is because he was saying, your view of God is stuck in, in, in how you've always viewed the gods. And now you just view me as the God of the gods and the most high. But I'm about to show you that I'm so different than the rest of these gods that even though I asked for your child, I'm telling you I don't want your child because I'm not about violence nor am I about sacrifice. That's why there's a very strange verse in the book of Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah 7, God says, I never told you to offer up all those sacrifices and kill all those animals and do all those oblations and all those feasts. And it's like, wait a minute, what? You know, all through, all through the Torah, all through the Old Covenant, all it's saying is you got to offer sacrifices, you got to do this. And yet in the book of Jeremiah, he said, I never told you to do that. I told you to obey my voice. Hallelujah. That is why mercy triumphs. Over judgment. It's a reason why I require obedience rather than sacrifice. In other words, God was saying, listen, I'm not like all these gods that demand anger and violence and death and retribution. I'm not like that. Abraham, I'm showing you that I'm different. I'm holy. I'm other than all the rest of them. And then God begins to show us picture after picture until he gets to Jesus. And the father did not sacrifice the son on the cross. We talked about that the last time I was here. The father and the son willingly on an act of love laid down their lives for us. 
That is the goodness of our Heavenly Father. So anyway, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. And I'm going to start in verse number 7 tonight. 2 Corinthians 3. Starting in verse 7, I'm going to be reading New King James. I don't know if they can bring that up. Can you bring that up on the screens? You guys didn't know? You can't do it, no worries. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But if the ministry of death, everybody say ministry of death. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, what, what was engraved on stones? The ministry of death, but the ministry of death written on stones was what? The law, all right? The only thing written on stones in the Bible was the Big Ten, okay? If that was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which that glory was passing away, how then will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation, everybody say ministry of condemnation. If the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Now, I, I need to stop here for just a minute because I, 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 need to, I want to make something extremely clear before we go on. Paul calls the law, the law of Moses, a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. It doesn't sound like something you want much to do with. Come on, everybody, please say amen or oh me. Listen, I don't know about you. I don't want anything to do with a minister of death. All right, I don't want the death angel anywhere near me. I don't want anything to do with a ministry of condemnation. I love in the Message Bible, it says that the law was a ministry of death and it was a ministry of condemnation, but this, this now ministry of righteousness, it is a ministry of affirmation. In other words, God is not in the business of condemning you and he's not in the business of producing death in you. He's in the business of affirming you and producing life in you. And the thing that I need you to understand, and man, if you guys don't hear anything else, if you hear this tonight, the law of Moses has absolutely nothing, nada, to do with you and I. Period. It was never written to you. It was never given to you. It was given to Jews in the Old Covenant. And according to Romans 15, as well as Paul and Corinthians, those things that were written in the scriptures beforehand, speaking of the Old Testament, their purpose was to give us hope. They were stories that we were to learn from. To me, the most beautiful picture is this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you've got, you've got Jesus, Moses, and Elijah being transfigured. Peter wakes up from sleep and he sees Moses, Elijah, the law and the prophets along with Jesus. And what is Peter's first response? His first response is let's build three synagogues. In other words, let's worship the law, let's worship the prophets, and let's add Jesus to it. And the moment he says let's build three synagogues, immediately Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is standing there all by himself. And the Father's voice from heaven says, this is my son, hear him. In other words, don't hear them. Their only purpose was to point to him. Now, that doesn't mean you throw the Old Testament. You know, I love to preach the Old Testament, but I'm preaching it through the lens of the finished work of the cross. We preach everything through the lens of Jesus and then move forward from there. And so I preach it, but I'm looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. I don't go to the Old Testament for my righteousness because it's not there. You could not be made righteous in the, on the law in the Old Covenant. Matter of fact, let me give you a clearer picture, and I don't know if I've ever heard any preacher preach this. I know they have. I haven't heard it. Acts 15, 
All the apostles gathered together in Jerusalem for a apostolic summit. The apostles gather together and they're going to have a discussion because a bunch of believing Pharisees had decided that the Gentiles shouldn't just believe to be saved, but they also had to be circumcised. Now, and I want you to think about this just from this standpoint. Imagine, you know, you're, you grew up in Corinth and Paul shows up and he preaches the good news of reconciliation to you, that God has brought you back into favor. He's not counting your sins against you. And you can have a brand new beginning and a fresh new start with God. And you're like, woo, man, good news. This is awesome. You get a clean slate, the forgiveness of sins. And you're like, this is awesome, man, what good news. And about two, three years later, some Jews show up from Jerusalem and they say, yeah, that's true. But if you really want to go deep with God and you really want to be saved, now we got to circumcise you. All of a sudden, bad news, all right? If you're a 30-year-old man, it's now really bad news to you. Now, the ladies would probably laugh, say, we had to have babies, you got to get circumcised again at 30. But, I mean, it's messed up. Matter of fact, Paul even says, he warns the churches, he said, watch out for the concision. Watch out for Peter, James, and John. He's like, watch out, watch out, because it says that the Jews sent people from Jerusalem to spy out their circumcision. I don't know if you've ever thought that one through. There's only one way you can spy out circumcision. All right. I mean, how'd you like to be in that, you know, that, that deacon and elder meeting? Well, listen, uh, we got uh, brother so-and-so is coming from Jerusalem. And so, you know, deacon Roy, we're going to place you at the bathroom. We want you to take a peek at every one of these dudes. Or how'd you, <laughs> come on, it's Sunday night. We can get with, or, or, or how'd you like to be in that altar service? Drop your drawers, boys. <laughs> Ladies, turn around and look backwards, gentlemen. We got, we got to see what's going on here. But that's how sick religion is. Religion is trying to poke its nose in areas that it has no business. <laughs> and so, man, they have this discussion, and, you know, Paul gets up, and he says, this is what God's led me to do. And then, you know, everybody's sharing their stories. And then Peter stands up, and he says something very interesting in Acts 15. He says, gentlemen, speaking to all the other apostles, let us not test God. Depending on your translation, other translation says, let us not tempt God. Another says, let us not grieve God by putting these Gentiles under a yoke of bondage that we and our forefathers could not even bear up under. For we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they are. Literally, Peter says, anytime you try to put Gentiles under the law of Moses, you are grieving God. You understand how intense this is, all right? You're testing God, tempting God by doing it. And yet it happens Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, all over the world. Because we, we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Bible. It's not what it says. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of what? It's, that's not even what it says. Most of our translations say the word of God. The original Greek is the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christos. It's one of my myths and mistranslations I have on. We're actually compiling them, putting it into a book uh, sometime here in the next few months because I'm going to stop at 60, I think. I think I'm at 54 right now or something like that. But, but, but it's, it's one of those things. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Because I can preach something to you out of the Old Covenant. It's not going to produce an ounce of faith in you whatsoever. I could turn right now to the book of Leviticus and tell every one of you women in here that if you showed up here and you're on your monthly cycle, we're supposed to take you out and stone you. How many know that ain't going to produce much faith, trust, confidence, or belief in you? 
All right. I mean, now God may, may have said it at one time or season, but, but it was for a certain people there, and it's not necessarily for you. But faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. That's why the writer of Colossians, Paul says this. He says that, that the law shuts up faith. Do you know that when you preach the law to the righteous, you actually shut faith down in them rather than produce faith in them? Because faith doesn't come by hearing the Bible. And listen, I love the Bible. I love the scriptures. I thank God that it's inspired by God. Everybody say amen. I love to read Read it, study it, gobble it up. But I've had to realize that faith doesn't come by everything I read in my Bible because there's stuff in my Bible. Matter of fact, Jesus, Paul put it like this, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That means you can read something in the Bible that produces death in you rather than produces life in you. Hmm? I mean, the Bible says that even, Bible, there's a bunch of stuff we say about the Bible that come from John Calvin that the Bible never says about itself. Hallelujah. Y'all think about that one later. I got to stay focused here. I don't want to run down any rabbit trails tonight. The importance of this is, 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 is understanding that the law, Christ is the end of the law to him who believes, Romans 10.4. You and I have no relationship, period, with the law. Matter of fact, uh, I'm getting ready to put this one up. Maybe I'll do it this week. Jesus constantly broke the law of Moses, but he never one time broke the law of God. He was breaking the law of Moses like a daily basis. He's touching stuff he ain't supposed to touch. He's talking to people he ain't supposed to talk to. He's eating on days he ain't supposed to eat. He's, he's healing people on days he I mean, I mean, if you study with Jesus, Jesus was really messing stuff up. I mean, that's why they crucified him. They were mad at him because he was, he was up setting their apple cart, man. He was flipping it over constantly. He was constantly breaking the law of Moses, but Jesus never said that he came to keep the law. It says he came to fulfill it. And according to Romans 13, 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. And God is love. So how did he fulfill the law? He fulfilled it by love because every time he broke the law of Moses, it was always out of compassion for humanity. It was always love. So he never broke the law of God. The law of God was always to love. Never broke the law, but constantly broke the law. That almost seems a little bit like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That's why if you really study the life of Jesus, it, it'll, man, it, it'll mess with your theology so bad if you really pay attention. To like stuff that's going on. But no, no, let me let me go on. I, I I had to make that extremely clear. Everybody say this out loud. Say the law has nothing to do with me. All right. Listen, the, the more you get that in your heart and spirit, you'll realize I learned some things from it, but I'm not under it. I'm under grace, I'm not under law. That, that law was given to a specific people at a specific time, and it was given to the Jews, and the Jews is not used. Huh? All right, now, let's, let's go on. Uh, verse, where did I leave off? 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because the glory that excels, for of what is passing away was glorious, what remains is so much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. For even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. 
Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. For we now, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. We are then told in chapter 4, verse 6, what that glory actually is. And it says that the glory is found in the face of Jesus Christ. So now, uh, let let, let me start with just a little analogy that I I read here a few years ago. I've had to learn things through the years when it comes to dealing with people. Uh, when, When you give oversight to churches... Uh, many of you have heard me say this before. When I'm on an airplane, someone asks me what I do for a living. I never tell people I'm a preacher because then, you know, they stop cussing and <laughs> they stop being themselves and they kind of straighten up around you. I always tell them, well, I troubleshoot for nonprofit corporations and because that's, that's really what I do. And then they're real interested in how that exactly works. And 15 minutes later, they're like, you're a preacher, aren't you? And, you know, they, they, they end up figuring it out. But uh, when it comes to dealing with people, and, and I get put in the middle of situations where I'm like, I'm, I'm between two parties. I'm trying to hear both sides. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm right in the middle. I'm litigating. I mean, I, I end up in a lot of situations like that. And the one thing I've had to realize, especially through the years, is perception is reality. So whether, you, whether I actually hurt you or not, if you perceive that I hurt you, then to you, I hurt you. So it really doesn't matter if I didn't do anything. If you perceive it as such, then it's a reality to you. I mean, so, so regardless, that's why I've just had to learn that, you know, humility always works. And I've just, there's times I've looked at people and I've just said, hey, listen, I apologize for whatever I did. I mean, I don't even say I apologize for what you perceive that I did because that's just passive aggressive I mean, that's all it ends up being. It's like, okay, well, listen, my heart is for reconciliation. That's the ministry we've been given. That's the word we've been given. And so, you know, if I got to bite the bullet on this one, I don't care. I'm not here to fight you. I, 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 I didn't say it this morning, but I'm in a season of life where if you want to fight, you win. I'm just, I'm not even, I just, I don't have the energy to fight anymore. I don't even want to fight you. If you want to argue, man, I'm going to rumble with you. Okay, you win. White flag of surrender. You win. Aren't you glad? Good for you. You won. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't have it in me. In my 20s and 30s, I wanted to fight all the time, and, and it's taken me years for God to make me a lover. A long time. I was way too hard-headed, and my A personality was way too out of control. Thank you, Jesus, for chilling me out. Thank you for the Holy Spirit living in us. Thank you for the grace of God. Ah, that's helped me so much. I heard this little story, and in this story, they, it was a couple that moved into a new house. And, and they were, after they got everything settled, they were sitting in the breakfast nook, and the wife's drinking her coffee, and she looks outside, and her next-door neighbor is, like, hanging white sheets and her husband's white shirts and, and towels out on the line to let them dry. And they're, like, all dingy, and 
I mean, they're just not cleaning. She's frustrated. She's talking to her husband. She says, do you see? Someone needs to teach that woman about bleach. I mean, those towels are nasty. I mean, how did she let her husband go to work with that, like, that dingy white shirt? I mean, and so, you know, it happens like three times that week, and she's frustrated. And finally, the next week comes around, and they're sitting in there drinking coffee, and she looks out the window, and she says to her husband, she said, baby, look. Look how white those towels and those sheets are in that shirt. She must have finally, someone must have stopped by and said, listen, I'm tired of looking at you putting this nasty stuff out there. And she must have finally figured out what bleach was. And her husband looks at her and he smiled. He said, yeah, either that or yesterday afternoon I cleaned the windows. (laughs) It took you a minute. You, You caught it there. It took a second. See, how we view things has everything to do with whatever vision, window, or veil, or perception that we're viewing them through. So my view of God has everything to do, according to 2 Corinthians 3, our view of who God is and the image of God that we, that we look at has everything to do with then the image we're changed into. So if I view God as the one that I was raised being taught from the time I was a little, you know, a, a little bit older, because, you know, I, I've watched myself go on this journey. You know, I, being a preacher's kid, I was raised in Sunday school, we don't necessarily do that anymore, but I was raised in Sunday school. And in Sunday school, they pretty much teach you one thing. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. I mean, when you're a little child, you just think, Jesus is awesome. I mean, you know, you, you'd, be, you'd be at Kroger's and you'd, you'd tell someone, Jesus loves you. I mean, my kids would do that all the time. I mean, Jesus is awesome when you're a little child. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. He loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in his sight. Woo! Jesus is awesome. But then by the time you get into youth group, about 12 or 13, you know, Jesus isn't smiling at you anymore. Now he's kind of got one eyebrow up because, you know, you're a little pervert now. You know, you... you <laughs> Your hormones got going and say, hey, now wait a minute, boy. Wait a minute. Watch that now. And by the time you're about 18, he's not even got an eyebrow. Now he's just downright scowling at you and he's half irritated. And by the time you're in your 20s, man, God's just downright ticked at you. He's throwing lightning bolts at you because the preachers got up and, and sent you to hell every other week like Pastor Kevin and got you saved every single Sunday. And there was never any security in your life for your salvation. And, and, and it was just the, the, these changing faces of Jesus. So if, if I were to title this tonight, it would be The Many Faces of Jesus. Because whatever face of Jesus I behold is what I become. Whatever face of Jesus I perceive is what I receive. Whatever I see, I be. And so if I see Jesus as angry and retributive and vindictive and he's just constantly in a, in a bad mood, like I remember watching, uh, watching a a documentary, and they were talking to the Westboro Baptist people. And the husband and wife that are one of the leaders, the man said to them about their kids, how many children do you have? I think they had like six or seven kids. And he said, do you love your children unconditionally? They said, absolutely not. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, we love the way God loves. And he said, well, how does God love? He said, God loves those who obey him. So when our children obey us, we love them. But when they don't, I, I literally threw a pillow at the TV. It made me so mad. My, my kids, nothing they do is going to keep me from loving them. 
I mean, it's the whole point about the story of the prodigal son is really more about the father than it is even the sons, and that the father's heart had no shadow of turning. There, with him, there is no shadow of turning. He, he don't go, well, I love, he loves me, he loves me not. I like him one minute, I'm really ticked at him this minute. There is no mindset of that with God, and it's showing that this father, he loves his kids regardless of their craziness, regardless of how they act. Oh, does it mean he's happy with everything they do? Of course not. Listen, when you do dumb stuff, you reap dumb stuff. No parents wants their kid to do dumb stuff. And sin makes you stupid, man. When you sin, you do stupid stuff. It's an issue of sowing and reaping. It's not an issue of, you know, I've heard people say about this election, well, if sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, whoever gets in, it's going to cause the judgment of God against America. I said, it ain't got nothing to do with judgment. I said, God is not counting men's sins against them. So it ain't got nothing to do with judgment. All judgment was placed on the cross when God consumed it once and for all, consuming all wrath completely. There's no judgment coming, period. But stupid stuff may happen because it's a principle of sowing and reaping. All right, if you continue to reject God, if you continue to do dumb stuff, you're going to reap dumb stuff. If a nation continues to reject God and do dumb stuff, they ain't got nothing to do with God, ain't got nothing to do with angels, it don't even have as much to do with the devil, okay? You just do dumb stuff, you're going to see a manifestation of dumb stuff. Someone please say amen. All right, listen, but it ain't got nothing to do with God, period. God... He's a father who views humanity as his kids who need to awaken to the reality that they're his kids. That is why all, according to 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 5, all were reconciled. In theology, they called it objective and subjective. 2,000 years ago, everybody was reconciled because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, while you were still in sin, he reconciled you. That means the whole world has been brought back into favor with God, just the whole world isn't saved. Because salvation deals with wholeness and completeness. That's why you must believe to be saved. In other words, you've got to believe by grace through faith in order to activate it in your life. It's true of you. But listen, you're believing it doesn't make it true. You believe it because it's already true. See, that'll just shift your thinking a little bit. My believing doesn't make it true of me. I believe it because it's already true of me because it was done 2,000 years ago. But how I perceive God, do I... I've watched in my life, I started as a little child with that smiling Jesus who went from the one with his eyebrow up to the one looking scowling at me to the one angry to all of a sudden, now the older I'm getting, back to the one who's smiling. Maybe that is why Jesus said, to inherit the kingdom, you must become a little child. Maybe, maybe it is learning to be childlike without being childish and it's learning to come into a place of simply receiving love because that's what a child does. When we struggle many times in our Christianity, it's because we're going about it as an adult. Rather than learning that childlike simplicity of just receiving. I mean, children are just amazing at just... They just receive, man. You know, you got, they don't got to beg you for it. They just receive love. They expect it because it's normal. But how you view him has everything to do with how you view you and then how you view others. That's why if you can easily throw people away, then in your mind, your God easily throws you away. I've heard preachers for years, and there was a day I was one of these preachers because it was my view of God that when people would leave the church, 
I'd hear preachers say, well, don't let the door hit you too hard on the way out. And the truth is, if that's really your attitude about people that don't want anything to do with God anymore, that's not the heart of Jesus. That, that, that might be because you're insecure and you feel like they hurt you and they rejected you, but that's not really the heart of Jesus because Jesus compassionately says, you know what, anyone, anyone that walks away, he's like, let's go kill a fatty calf. I'm not chasing them. I'm not running after them because he only chases lost sheep. He doesn't chase prodigals. Huh? You don't chase prodigals. Prodigals got to wake up. And, and, and they got to come to themselves and then come back home. But then when they come home, you throw them a party. You don't say, where have you been? Why don't you straighten up? Do you know if you wouldn't have did this? If you wouldn't have did that? That's what churches constantly do. I've, I've been in services where preachers have changed their sermon because someone walked in and they happened to sit in the back row and he knew that that guy was living with that girl and he changed the whole sermon. All of a sudden, he's preaching, preaching about shacking. You, somebody, some of you here are shacking. You're shacking up. Preaching about shacking. Just preach Jesus, man. Shut up. Man, just, just preach it. Let him deal with them. He's the one that changes us and convicts us and deals with us, not us. Our problem is the church has been trying to be the Holy Spirit, and we do a horrible job of being the Holy Spirit. Horrible job of being the Holy Spirit. But see, whatever view I have, if I, you know, Paul said something that's, in this season of my life, it's almost a little scary to me, but Paul said, if anyone comes to you and preaches another Jesus, I want you to think about that for a minute. That means you could have actually sat in church for years and had someone be teaching you another Jesus. Matter of fact, some of you maybe have even experienced that. I've had people come to me and have been in church for seven years, and they come to our church, and they're like, man, I feel like I'm hearing the gospel for the first time. I said, you probably are. It's probably actually good news. And they're like, yes, it really is. It's like good news. And I'm like, maybe you had Jesus preached to you, the historical man, but you did not have the resurrected Savior declared to you, and, and there was another Jesus because they preached Jesus and. Jesus plus. Jesus and doing this. It's not just Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus with mixture. See, the, the biggest struggle in the church is not people preaching law. I can walk into a church and tell if someone is just preaching all-out law, because at least if they're preaching all-out law, I can recognize that, just like that. The struggle is with mixture. See, there's a reason why God in the Old Testament said things like, listen, when you sow seed in a field, uh, don't mix seed. In other words, you know, uh, if you're going to plant cucumbers, just do cucumbers. And then over here on another side, do tomatoes. Uh, when he said, when you wear clothes, don't mix cloth. Don't mix, you know, uh, you know cotton with linen. With, uh, you know, it, God doesn't care about your clothes. He doesn't care that you've got a mix of polyviscose and cotton. Okay, that had nothing to do with it. What he was saying is, I don't like mixture. See, that's where even in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking to the one church and he said, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm. What's lukewarm? It's when you mix hot and cold. And he said, what mixture of hot and cold does is it produces in you vomit. That's what happens to me now. I've gotten such a hold of what an able minister of the New Covenant is that sometimes I can sit in the service and I will literally start to get sick to my stomach 
uh, just by what I'm listening to. It doesn't mean that the people aren't sincere. It doesn't mean they're not godly. Uh, it's just that they're mixing law with grace. That is why Paul is extremely clear in this passage, and he says this. What keeps us from seeing Jesus clearly? It's when Moses is red and a veil drops over our hearts. It's any time we quote Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And we don't explain it in the light of the cross. And we say, if you meditate on the word of God day and night, if you teach your children, all your ways shall be prosperous. The problem is, is the verse before says, if you keep all the commands, 613 of them bad boys. All right, so that means if you keep all these commands, then... All your way will be prosperous. And so we quote, we quote Joshua 1.8 and we're like, how come my way isn't prosperous? How come I'm doing all this stuff? I'm doing everything I know to do. How come I'm constantly struggling? It's because you're, try, you're trying to go back under a system that was never meant for you. Is it still a good scripture? Yes, but you've got to read it in light of this side of the cross. Because if I preach Moses, Joshua, or anything else, this, this, let me explain it like this. This is what happens in churches. I meet people all the time who've been saved 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And their favorite verse is restore to me the joy of my salvation. Their favorite song, take me back. Old Andre Crouch, take me back, dear Lord. Take me back to that place where I first met you. It's like, oh, we just want to get back. Because when you first get saved, maybe you come to an altar. Maybe someone leads you to Christ at a store, wherever it is. Man, you feel all this weight of sin is off you. This joy flooded your heart. And you're like, man, this is awesome. Man, I mean, you feel Jesus in your heart literally transforming you. And then you come to church the next Sunday. And they preach Moses to you. The veil got removed when you turned to Christ and then someone came and put a veil right back over your eyes and begins to cloud your mind. And so then if you, were, if you went to a church like that a major portion of your life, this is what ended up happening. Uh, you, you, you are constantly waiting for revival because you're waiting for someone to constantly remove the veil from your eyes and you want to feel what you felt when you first got saved because rather than preaching and teaching you now who you are in Christ and how God views you, we begin to preach to you like you were still an old man. And we just drop veils. All these veils over your heart, over your mind, and it brings confusion. I like to explain it like this. Jesus speaks to the disciples one day. Lazarus has been in a tomb for four days, and he's dead. And, and Jesus says, roll the stone away. He tells his apostles, your number one job is to remove the stone. I want you to get the law out of people's way that keeps them bound and keeps them in bondage. Roll the stone away. But then Jesus calls them out of the grave because Jesus is the only one that can save you. Come on, we can't save anybody. We can't change anybody. All we can do is roll the stone away. And Lazarus comes out of the grave, but he's resurrected, but he's still bound. He's got all of these veils that are still around his eyes. The problem, our main job, Jesus then tells his apostles, loose him and let him go or untie him. Remove the veils off of his mind and his body so that he can walk in freedom. The problem in the church is rather than remove the veils, we add more bondage on them by saying, now you got to do this, 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 and this. And then the next Sunday, we preach the law to them again. It pretty much kicks them back in the grave, rolls the stone over. Hallelujah. 
And then they're sitting there for years and years and years in church. I'm not good enough, and I'm never going to arrive, and I'm not sure he's a good, good father. He's a good father now, but he might not be a good father when I cut someone off in traffic. He's, uh, he's, a, he's, he's a good father when I'm good, but I'm not sure he's a good father when I'm not having a good week because we're full of all of these veils. It is, see, see one of the things about once you learn what the new covenant is really about, and you hear mixture. I, I run into more and more people today than ever before that are doing web church. I mean, they're just not attending because they say it frustrates them more than anything to go sit in church and have a stomachache because we're constantly putting a veil over people. And they're like, wait a minute, you're supposed to help me become free, not put me into more bondage. Someone please say Amen. And you see, we don't even comprehend sometimes the simplicity of this and how it's so easy to just... And we're trying to see Jesus, but I got these veils in the way. I want to see this God who's smiling at me, who loves me, but man, I'm having to look through all of this stuff. And and, and every time Moses pops over, See, I don't believe there's any accident why in the book of Jude it says that, that Michael the archangel, in having a dispute with the devil, they were arguing about the body of Moses. That, that, that's a verse that for years was, just intrigued me. Until one day I asked the Holy Spirit about it. He said, well, even the devil knows if he can keep Moses alive in you, he can keep you into bondage. Isn't it interesting, devil? The, the devil never cared about the body of Abraham. Why didn't he want the body of Abraham? That's our father of faith. Why not Elijah or Elisha, the guy that had a double portion? He's like, I want Moses' body because if I can keep Moses, hmm, if I can keep you under a bondage of something that was never given to you, then man, I can keep you in fear. You're never going to see Jesus clearly. Your comprehension of God is still going to be muddled. It's not clear because it's only found in the face of Jesus. That's why the, the older I'm getting, things are getting simpler to me. If it doesn't look like Jesus, I reject it. Matter of fact, let me get as bold as saying this. And I feel the freedom to release this here. If I read something in the Old Testament that doesn't look like Jesus... I question it. Can you see Jesus telling Joshua to kill every man, woman, and child as a Canaanite? Can you see Jesus killing babies? It got real quiet in here all of a sudden. Of course not. Do they believe? Did Joshua believe God was telling him that? Absolutely believe believe God was telling him that. Did God have it recorded for us? Absolutely. To show us that ain't you. No man had seen God at any time, John 1. Man, that, that thing I've been meditating on for five years. Five times in the Old Testament, people talk with God face to face. Moses talked with God face to face. Abraham cooked God a whole meal, a three-course meal. Study it in, in, in the book of Genesis. God sits down and he brings them three-course meal, feeds them, has a discussion with God. Can you imagine God sitting at a table with you and you? You being able to feed God? But yet... John 1 says, no man saw him. Because even though they saw him, they still were looking at him through 
a veil. It wasn't clear. Jesus shows up and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what daddy looks like, he looks like Jesus. Not only that, can I just shock you? He's always looked like Jesus. There's never been a time he didn't look like Jesus. Man, the Old Testament is all about man's covenant journey with humanity and our misunderstandings of him on a regular basis. It, it, it is God revealing himself. I mean, I mean, something is simple. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, you know, Joshua is in the middle of a battle one day, and he cries out to God. He says, oh, God, please, I need more light. Have the sun stand still. Now, this is how loving and kind God is. God, God doesn't look down and say, listen, son, you're a moron. The sun always stands still. I mean, he, I mean, he doesn't go try to correct him and saying, listen, I know in your ancient mind you're still a little ignorant because you've not been educated enough yet because the world has not come into enough knowledge yet to even know. I mean, you're still living in a flat earth mentality, Joshua. You still think the earth is flat and the sun always stands still. Matter of fact, son, let me explain this to you. The earth revolves around the sun. Joshua wouldn't have been able to comprehend that on any level. But the goodness of God, he doesn't say, listen, the sun always stands still. He just has the earth stand still, makes Joshua think the sun stood still when all he did was have the earth stand still. That's a good, good father. He's not making fun of his kid's ignorance. And yet we know uh, this perfect book didn't figure out that the sun always stands still. Hallelujah. Y'all have to get back to me on that one. I just... See, our problem in America is we practice bibliotry. We think the Bible is the fourth person of the Trinity. 395 years there was no Bible. Do you know that? 395 years before it was canonized. I've always wondered, man, for 390 years, what what did the church do when they got together? What did they talk about? Because a bunch of Gentiles weren't going to sit and discuss the law and the prophets. They wouldn't have any comprehension of it. Then, from 390 all the way up to the 1600s with the Wittenberg Press, there was a less than 5% literacy rate. People couldn't even read their own language, and the Bible was only in Latin. And they certainly couldn't read Latin. I mean, we live in, a, in the 21st century. We've got 30 versions on our phone. And for the first 1,600 years, the only people that had a Bible was there was one in every local parish in the city, or if you were very wealthy, and even then someone had to teach you how to read it and interpret it. How in the world did the church survive for 1,600 years? Maybe it's because they had the indwelling Holy Spirit. Maybe God wrote his law in their hearts. Maybe rather than sit and argue doctrine, they actually loved each other. What a shock. Now listen, am I glad we have Bibles? Yes. Am I glad that we can sit and, and discuss theology? And oh yes, I enjoy it. I love it. But, but, but listen, man, we can't worship something that God never told us to worship. We're to worship God and Him alone. Period. You see, these, these veils, it seems like they fall off one by one. First John put it like this in chapter 3. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed. It's the word unveiled, what we shall be. But when he is unveiled, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, the more the veils are removed from our mind, 
the more we see him and all he's doing is smiling. Even in the old covenant, he said, I'm going to cause my face to shine upon you. So we go through this process, and let me wind this down. Little children, happy Jesus. Teenagers. Time we're in college. Wrathful, angry God. Because we've heard a preacher say one of the greatest revivals in America. I preach it, preach sinners in the hands of an angry God. Don't you know that God is angry? And, and that same preacher uh, actually wrote down, I have a quote of Jonathan Edwards. It says, the incredible joy of a believing parent while in heaven looking into the abyss of hell. First of all, if I'm in heaven and I can see hell, I ain't heaven no more. All right, that's pretty sick all in itself. All right. At looking and seeing his unbelieving children being tortured, the incredible joy and bliss of that parent because of the justice of God. Now, what kind of, you're going to have to pardon me, what kind of sick S, anyway, hallelujah. SO something. What, what kind of sick mind thinks that a parent would have incredible joy in watching their children being tortured forever. You got issues. That's a monster God. That's jacked up to the core. But if that's your view of him, it it is people's messed up view of God that caused the Holocaust. It's people's messed up view of God that said slavery was okay because I can find a scripture for it. It's people's messed up view of God that said, hey, the KKK is good because God told us not to mix. It's it's most of the junk, the wars and the battles that have happened in our world has been mainly fought somewhere because of some kind of religious ideology. And I didn't say it this morning, but, but what we've turned Christianity into is our founder can beat up your founder. Jesus can what Muhammad? Jesus can beat Buddha. My founder is bigger than your founder. Nana and Abuba, my daddy can beat your daddy. And then we wonder why the world isn't interested. They're not interested in coming and sitting down and hearing us talk about our daddy can whoop your daddy. There's just no, there's no interest in it. And so until we can get to the place that we say, Father, I need all the veils I need to see you clearly, and I need to see the face of Jesus. And I need to get to the simplicity of a place that I see Jesus smiling at me. I see that his face is shining. He's got a grin from ear to ear. He's crazy about his kids. Because if I close my eyes and I cannot picture that, then there's some veils that Father wants to begin to remove off of your mind. Because that's who he really is. And that's what his heart has always been towards us. But we didn't know that. We misunderstood it. Now let me share this and then I'll, then I'll be done. I know most of you, because um, he's now also an anchor here, but uh, Nate Blouse, Nate and I, we've, we've walked together now almost 30 years. We've been longtime friends. And uh, every two to three years, my wife and I 
we, we try to get a session in with Nate just because uh, life happens. You know, crazy stuff happens. You don't even realize sometimes uh, emotionally how when you go through things, how it affected you. And uh, we're, we're sitting in a session, and I, I, had, I had for about six months been going through something where I realized that I never felt safe in church, like in a church, quote-unquote, building. I never felt safe, and I, I couldn't figure out why. I, I would pray about it, and I'd be like, Lord, why is this? Why don't I ever feel completely just content and safe in church? And, you know, I go through the whole thing, and, you know, I've had sessions where I'm like, okay, Lord, you know, would you show me where this is coming from? Nothing was coming. So I sit down with Nate. He's just got an anointing for it. He just does. I sit down with Nate, and I'm telling him, and he said, okay, Holy Spirit, would you please show Jamie why he doesn't feel safe in church? Immediately, I was six, seven years old, and I'm running down a hallway in a little town called Alpena, Michigan, at my dad's church, Alpena First Assembly of God. And I'm running down the hallway, and, you know, this was back in the day where, you know, I, I, I've told people for years, me growing up, I didn't, the only reason I enjoyed going to church is to see friends. Because back in the 70s, everybody in church spanked you. You know, it, it was like, you know, it takes a village. No, it took a whole church to raise a kid. I mean, because, you know, I'd have, you know, and, and I was a normal boy. I didn't want to sit in them hard pews, and I'd be moving and squirming and running around. And so i get a couple spankings from people in the church, and then i get home and get a spanking from my dad because someone spanked me in church. My dad's going to give me a spanking because someone spanked me. And so it just wasn't an enjoyable place to go to. I mean, because I was a normal boy, you know, I mean, just all of that. And I remember I'm running down the hallway, and this woman comes out of the bathroom, and her name was Cora. And Cora was about a 380-pound Cruella DeVille. Had big moles with hair, chunks of hair coming out of her moles. I mean, and we were, we were made to, I mean, seriously, we were made, my brother and I, we were made to call her Grandma Cora because she was our babysitter whenever my parents would leave. And we were horrified of her, absolutely horrified. I mean, she wasn't nice. She was just mean, you know. I mean, just, just, she was this mean German woman. I mean, it was just Corella DeVille. And she comes out of the bathroom and sees me, and she scoops me up, throws me over her shoulder, and she starts, she starts beating me. And I'm looking over her shoulder, and I'm crying because I'm getting a spanking. And all of a sudden, my dad comes around the corner, and my dad stands, and he watches it because he had given Cora permission to correct me. And so Nate walks me through, and we forgive my dad for letting it happen, and we forgive Cora for doing that to me. And then Nate, Nate says, now, Holy Spirit, would you show six, seven-year-old Jamie where Jesus was during all this? sudden all I saw was Jesus his arms are wrapped around hers and he's pulling and he's saying Cora this isn't correction this isn't how you treat my child you're angry not at him Cora stop it and I'm seeing Jesus on my behalf saying I don't agree with this And we walked through a few other things. And two days later, I walked into the church building. And for the first time, I felt safe. It was okay. 
But I also realized from that that I also never fully felt safe with the Heavenly Father because my dad stood and watched it and approved. And up until May of this year, I preached about the Father, loved the Father, but for the first time in my life, I felt safe with him. I felt safe with him. Because all of a sudden, the picture of him was no longer just watching while I got beat. The picture of him was smiling at me. And so now, how I treat me and how I treat you, I can't dishonor you because he'll never dishonor me. How could I get ugly with you when I know that he doesn't get ugly with me? You see, we treat other people according to the image that we have of our God. Whether we even believe in God or not, that's a God in itself. And I had to come to a place where God peels away all of the veils. He says, I just want you to see me. I want you to see how beautiful I am. I want you to see how altogether lovely I am. I want you to see that I'm really a good, good father. And you can be safe in my presence. I'm safe for you. And when you've been raised under fear and hellfire and brimstone, God's not safe to you. You're thinking he's going to kick you to the curb any minute. Because you got saved 50 times to Matthew chapter 7. Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, healed the sick, raised the dead, and cast out devils? And I'll say, away from me, I never knew you. You see, you can be a Christian and serve God faithfully at the end of your life. He throw you away. Well, that verse has nothing to do with any Christians because God will never tell you, I never knew you. How could God tell one of his own, I never knew you? He's talking about false prophets. He's talking to Jews, not yous. Jesus was speaking to people under the law. There were no Christians until it is finished. Hmm? That's where the moment you comprehend that, you're like, he's, not gonna, he's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. And he does nothing but smile at me. See, when I can get that image, I'm going to start smiling at me. I'm going to start liking me more. It's easy to love your neighbor when you like you. Guess what? I'm going to start loving other people more. Because I don't have a skewered, veiled image of who God is. When we begin to see that, it changes everything. Could you guys come? I want you to play good, good father if you could. Stand on your feet, would you? Father, I thank you today. Thank you for your amazing love for us. Thank you for your heart for us. Lord, I thank you that you, you will in no wise ever cast us out. You don't throw us away. Your heart is nothing but joy towards us. 
you hate sin, but it's because of what it does to us. You don't hate us. You love your children. That's why you're passionately pursuing us. That's why you're constantly stalking us, chasing us down. Father, I ask that you help each and every one of us in here tonight. I ask that you remove the veils of religion and wrong teaching. Father, remove the remove the, the veils of Moses that have been put over our faces. Remove the old covenant thought processes that have constantly disqualified us. And help us to see ourselves the way that you see us. Forgiven and cleansed and whole and complete and loved. Sons and daughters that no matter how much we disappoint ourselves, we don't, we don't disappoint you. You're not even holding or counting our, our sins, our missteps, our lapses, our falling away against us. Humans hold those things against us, but you don't. And you're a good father who is just constantly constantly viewing your kids with intense passion with orge you are viewing us not with the wrath that we thought was wrath which was anger but an intense passion and love for us we thank you for it Father in the name of Jesus now help me. Could you just move this out of the way? So, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, everybody, if you could, would you come on down here? I want us to pray something together, and I want to minister to some of you. Thank you for showing up, listening to my rantings tonight. This is something I'm, I'm, I'm so passionate about because I know I know how much it changed me. I know how I, I lived a major portion of my life constantly trying, trying to make God happy, trying to please Him, viewing myself from a wrong perspective because my view of God was wrong. It was just wrong. doesn't mean that I wasn't saved. doesn't mean that if I would have died, I wouldn't have went to heaven. That's, that's not really the point. The point is really not about where you go when you die. That, that got sealed that got sealed when you got reconciled the early church didn't even talk about it no sermons about it I mean you know you think 18 sermons in the book of Acts preaching to Gentiles the first few to Jews they would have brought up something about where you go when you die it wasn't the message the message was about receiving a kingdom it was about receiving life wholeness and completeness being reconciled to God I mean, I had someone say to me the other day, well, if it's not all about heaven or hell, then what is it all about? Relationship with the Father? That's what it was always about. It was always about a relationship with God, something that you didn't think was there. Man, eternity, eternity, yes. Is there heaven? Is there hell? Yes. But that, that's just, that's only been the message for the last 500 years, the first 1,500 years of the church. It just hardly talked about it wasn't the point but we've made it the point and 
most of it was fear and control. Rather than just say, God's crazy about you. He's passionate for you. All of this world, he looks down, Paul on Mars Hill standing up, and, and he's talking to nothing but pagans. He's not talking to any Christians. And he says to a bunch of pagans who don't know God, he says, as your poets have declared, in him we live and move and have our being, for we are all God's genos. We're all God's family, his kind, his offspring, and his children. God looks down on this earth, and, and, and I'm going to shock you with this. He even sees ISIS as his kids. Saul was ISIS before there was an ISIS. Saul was cutting and killing people, Christians, in the name of his God. And yet he has an experience with Jesus and he becomes one of the greatest apostles the world has ever known. Let me tell you that those experiences are happening in the Middle East right now like crazy because it is man's view of God that's distorted, that's causing most of the mess in our world. If your view of God is that only people that think like you he loves and everyone else are infidels that's a jacked up view of God and that's where when Jesus came he's like man I'm gonna I'm here to show you something that don't look anything like anything you've heard God is chasing you down he's stalking you and he loves you and watch how I treat people because this is what he thinks about you so I want you to do something. I want you to close your eyes. And, and I want you to just get a picture in your mind's eye or a vision of maybe how you view Jesus, how you view God. And for all of us, that might be different. Some, some you might see a parental figure. For me, when I thought of God as Father, I would see my dad because he was that example but I would also many times see my dad scowling at me or angry with me. It took a while where I could finally see him smiling. But I want you to pray something with me and we're gonna pray that the veils would be removed and that you would see Jesus for who he really is. That there be a fresh revelation of him in your heart and your mind tonight and that you see him correctly. So pray this with me. Father, in Jesus' name, remove all of the veils, all of the wrong beliefs, all of the religion, all of the tradition. I want to see you as you really are. Help me to perceive how you really are. Transform me tonight. I want to see you smiling in Jesus' name. I want you to just lift your hands and love on him just for a moment. And then I want you to begin to see him that way. See, there's something about worship. There's something about magnification. When you magnify something, it gets bigger in your eyes. It doesn't get bigger. You, you can't get God to get any bigger than he already is. But when you magnify him, he becomes bigger in your sight. And I want you to begin to see him smiling at you. So let's let's begin to sing this and worship. He's a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are.
Thank you for listening to the Exchange Church Podcast. Follow us on our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for the Exchange Church Houston. If you would like to give to the Exchange Church, you can go to our website at IamTheExchange.com and look for the red button in the top right corner labeled Give Online. <laughs>